This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, the folks at Bella Catering are one of the best catering companies in the whole of Australia and especially in Sydney. But due to the coronavirus restrictions, those lovely folks led by Glenn and Maria are unfortunately struggling but we can help them and I want to help them with this show. So if you guys can and you like delicious things and you're in Australia and you're in Sydney and you're within about a 20K to 30K radius, which is pretty much the entire um, Sydney basin, if you want delicious food at a great price and you want it delivered to your house, bellacatering.com.au is where you need to go. Absolutely delicious stuff, family stuff, like, you know, huge, huge get-togethers that we're doing virtually and things like that. You want leftovers, you want that sort of thing, bam, bellacatering.com.au. Glenn is absolutely a deeply questionable individual. However, that should not be held against him. He has a lovely wife, he has a lovely family, and they've got great staff, and they are awesome. Now, on to the show. The Watergate scandal had reached a peak, and President Richard M. Nixon was furious about press leaks. His suspicions focused on a number two man at the FBI, W. Mark Felt, a 31-year-old Bureau veteran. He ordered his aides to confront this presumed traitor. Another man may have panicked. Over the previous six months, Felt had been meeting secretly with Bob Woodward of the Washington Post, helping him and fellow Post reporter Carl Bernstein with a series of sensational scoops about the abuse of presidential power. But the former World War II spymaster had an exquisite sense of how to play the bureaucratic game. In a February 21, 1973 FBI memo, Felt denounced the Post stories as an amalgam of fiction and half-truths, combined with some genuine information from sources either in the FBI or the Department of Justice. To deflect attention from himself, he ordered an investigation into the latest leak. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is... Now a podcast host herself, which is very exciting. Um, she's my very good friend. She is she's a self-professed movie encyclopedia. She's also a three times national award-winning scribe. Um, her podcast, Watch with Jen, is now on all of the good podcast apps. So all you need to do, if you want right now, even to pause this show and use whatever podcast app you're doing and type in Watch with Jen. It is my very very insightful. Um, incredibly prolific viewer and writer, <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> especially viewer, um, uh, is my great guest today uh, talking to me on All the President's Minutes. It's Jen Johans. Jen, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to get on iTunes. Hopefully, by the time this airs, I'll be on there. Look, I can tell you that most folks uh, still still do the old iTunes uh, because it's very convenient. But Apple Podcast app is, let's talk inside podcast and inside baseball, so to speak, right now. Apple Podcast app sucks. It's a really annoying app. And so many people use things oh, like bummer. use Overcast and Pocket Cast and now Spotify. So, Spotify, go on there right now. You can find Jen. That's probably the easiest place um, to find her right now if you want to check out the show. And uh, it's so cool that you are having a, a litany of awesome people on there to talk to you about what they're watching and what you're watching and uh, about writing and craft. My favorite episode far as, uh, episode so far is the Jordan Harper episode, probably because I'm biased uh, being a lover of Jordan Harper's both writing and as a person. So, um, yeah, he's uh, that was a lot of fun. It's awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I I love being here, and it's been great getting to know so many people through the One Heat family, like Jordan <laughs> Harper. And as soon as we clicked, we immediately started talking about our good friend Blake. So yeah. <laughs> Listen, all I if I if my life's work is connecting people who love heat so deeply together uh, and making it this wide group, which I now am going to call the One Heat family because um, it's very cool uh, and dubbed by you. So as that, I'm, I'm, I'm all good. That's, I'm very happy. So let's get started. Firstly, you're obviously a movie fan you and a prolific viewer. And we just quickly talked off air. We touched on your love of Pacula. I, I think that that's, you know, we're, we're in now, we're, we're right in one of the most important moments of the film the beginnings of the deep throat scene. It's the 39th mm-hmm. minute. Um, it's such a powerful minute. So I think it speaks so much to itself, but I'd love to hear you, Jen, talk about your love of Pacula and his other work, because I think that's something 
that um, it's so nice to hear straight off the bat that people love him and are familiar with him because I think that a lot of the movie folk that I speak to uh, in this show do have a real affection for Pacula as a filmmaker, whereas like some of the journalists and the more historians and, and craftspeople um, do mention him. But it's like I, I loved that you mentioned it first. So let's I think we should start there. I am a huge fan of Alan J. Pacula. I actually bought the book, Alan J. Pacula, His Films and His Life like a couple years back because I was thinking of writing something on both his work and Sidney Pollack, who's yes. another one of my favorites. I actually credit Sidney Pollack for my existence because my <laughs> parents on their first date saw Jeremiah Johnson and my mom like didn't want to go. She wasn't sure about my dad. And I always joke like if they'd gone to some horrible movie, they might not have had anything to talk about. So, so Sidney Pollack, and I always kind of link those two filmmakers together. Um, I think their work in the 70s is... So that Jeremiah Johnson gif must just mean so much more to you than the entire internet who uses the... It the really does. It must just w- warm yeah. your heart. Yeah. It's like, oh, my parents saw that together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boy, Pacula, for this podcast, I actually rewatched. All the presidents been twice because you got to you bring your A game for Blake. <laughs> and also today I watched the Pelican Brief again. Oh, underrated. Which I think so. That was the one Grisham book I remember reading as a kid that I actually stayed up all night till like three in the morning reading. And I loved the movies. I was thinking about back then how gifted we were to have like Tom Cruise and Denzel Washington in these Grisham movies today. They'd be like Amazon series. <laughs> yes. There would, there would never be cause there's no superheroes or anything like that. So it wouldn't be a big box office uh, success or and even, I don't think it would get greenlit. No big filmmakers yeah. too. Right. So like you're looking at the, um, yeah. is it Coppola? Sydney does Pollock. The yeah. Po- Sydney Pollock. And, um, and then, uh, Coppola does one. Am I wrong about that? Which one does he do? Is that no? The, is, he did the Rainmaker, Rainmaker, which is also under underrated. Underrated, yep. yeah. So it's like you get a Coppola courtroom drama, like the Rainmaker. You get the Firm, and then you get the Pelican Brief, and it's like all of those are these pulpy novels that are consumed yes. re- re- religiously. The Simpsons joke about it that every bookshop is, you know, um, you know, Crichton and King, but it's the same. It's the same sort of Jesse Grisham's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's he's in the same wheelhouse, but yeah, no, it's. It would be unconscionable that these would be individual entities because you just know that people automatically think of like, how can I make the Grisham cinematic universe or the character cinematic <laughs> universe out of this? You know, everything is cinematic universe. Yeah. Um, but it's nice that this was just a standalone. It was. And all three of those filmmakers made such thoughtful, interesting, the paranoid thrillers in the 70s. Yes. And takes us right back to this. The, my first experience with All the President's Men, I was probably 15 at a youth journalism conference at the University of Minnesota. And there was a presentation on um, Woodward and Bernstein and how the film, especially, of course, the book too, but was responsible for such a surge in admissions to journalism school. Yes, And they had this chart of like, you know, how many people flooded into journalism <laughs> school after that. And I thought that was so cool. And then, of course, there's the joke that that absence of malice kind of undid what all the presidents then did because it showed the danger. Yes. But I think you can still, you can, you can enjoy it as well and, you know, not drop out of journalism <laughs> school. But <laughs> Well, look, I, th- yeah. I think if you're, if you're, Fickle enough to go into journalism school on a film, you might leave on it. Like, I think if that's that's true, if If that's that's your one, if if that's you know, if and and I would say, like, if your one thing for going into the Air Force was Top Gun, um, yeah, you know, maybe you would leave for another perhaps not nice Air Force film. I don't, maybe Air Force One. I don't know what I don't know what the the anti Top Gun is in the market, but it's like, it seems really strange. But no, completely unsurprising, right? Because also then the, they're lionized, not only in the novel, but as particularly in the film. Um, And I think we will probably get into parts of our discussion talking more about the arc, right? Because it's not, Mm -hmm. they're not, they're not just these, 
supreme beings that come in there. I think it's that process of the, the, them elevating up. But it's really interesting, though, you, you bring up a point that hasn't been brought up yet on the show. It's like all three of those big filmmakers who made really prescient, current, timely paranoia thrillers at the mm-hmm. time of the paranoia thriller era. So you get Pacula who made his trick trilogy um and then he sort of does little dalliances with sort of semi-paranoia thrillers but they've got different means one is sort of like a justice system and judicial this one is another kind of criminal justice conspiracy coppola does conversation which is maybe one of the greatest movies of all time in american cinema but also one of the great paranoia thrillers so but they all did them later and so what's interesting is how they there's a commodification right because at the time all their films that they're making are really out there for the times. Mm-hmm. I mean, All the Presidents is probably the most lauded um, alongside the conversation because they both get nominated for Oscar. But then later these other ones are like popcorn films in a way. Yeah. Yeah, they all kind of did back in the time. Yeah. It was like paranoia thriller, like central at yes. that <laughs> moment of time. I think we were all, especially in the Vietnam era, they were not trusting the government and no. then Nixon and yeah, and all the assassinations in the 60s. So it kind of fed right into this. I also enjoyed the Pacula's little forays into other genres after this. Um, they're underrated, but I really enjoyed Starting Over. It's one of my favorite Burt Reynolds movies. Yes. I also love Comes a Horseman. I haven't seen I know that. most people. Oh, it's so good. It was shot by Gordon Willis as well. It's a Jane Fonda Western where I think it's Robard is the lecherous uh, rancher who's trying to like take her land or something. And James Kahn is a, like a veteran who helps her out on the farm. Of course they fall in love and it's a good one. And then also rollover with Jane Fonda, which, okay. It's, you know, don't think too hard or you'll be able to pull the entire movie apart, but it deals with foreign interests in our banking. So it's, it has this whole paranoid thing going on as well. So I liked those movies too, but you know, I mean, they're not all the president's men, of course. And I also love that he kind of returned to this later on with Pelican Brief. I was watching that today and thinking, boy, there's a second excellent scene with a parking garage. Yes. Just like the one that happens in the 39th minute. Um, And I just thought, kind of cyclical he went right back to it yeah i think with these guys um it's one of the challenges is when you get so good at a genre it's like do you Mm -hmm. leave it um and you know i even had a chance a long time ago to talk to quentin tarantino he's like i don't think you can say that you're a western director unless you made three westerns i think was his it was his thing it was like i don't think you can call yourself a director in a genre unless you've made three of them and so um, you know, because, and this was coming off the back of him, um, having done Django, then doing hateful eight as a Western. Um, and so, and, and at that time he was t- tinkering with the idea of doing a Western. And although there is so much Western in once upon a time in Hollywood, I don't know if you'd consider that his third Western, but you know, oh, true. maybe that could be the case. Um, but you know, he, he does a paranoia trilogy, but I think with all the presidents, there's a, there's a real burden that is different. Um, and exactly like you said, like you can use similar motifs, but the burden is unlike with Pelican Brief because you've got the blessing of it being pure fiction and the the, sure. the, the reins uh, of fiction allowing you to just do whatever the hell you want um, and adapt it however mm-hmm. the hell you want. Um, I, I'm, really, um, I'm really interested uh, about how he flexes this motif in – in the confines of the factual, like it is, he's trying, he's saying, this is what actually happened. And this is how, or at least how yeah. Woodward tells it, this is how, how it actually happens. But then he gets to play with our, right, in the confines of these spaces where these things happen, this is how I can affect a mood. This is how I can make you feel like things are wrong. This is how I can make you, f- mm-hmm. you know, feel like things are overwhelming. This is how I can use these perpendicular motifs and have a lot of fun. So I think that's a perfect entryway yeah. to get into this minute. So uh, 
Jen is great, as you already have probably heard, but I'm also pleased that I get to burden her with a with one of the first deep throat minutes of the film. So I'm so thrilled. I'm, I'm excited. Um, so we're going to watch uh, this minute right now, the 39th minute along together. Um, you guys are going to listen okay. along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Stuck. Story is stalled on us. And you thought I'd help? I'll never quote you. I wouldn't quote you even as an anonymous source. I mean, you'd be on deep background. You can trust me, you know that. Come on. Can you tell me what you know? You tell me what you know. Hunt worked for Colson at the White House. Hunt was investigating Kennedy at Chappaquiddick. That should tell you a lot. What else? Well, we're beginning to hear a lot about a lawyer creep named Gordon Liddy. Who's... There it is. Great minute. It is good. It is a really good minute. Yeah. I love my favorite minute before we jump in, Jen. My favorite part of the minute, rather, is I love the pause for Hal Holbrook's deep throat when he says, you know, you can trust me. Mm-hmm. And it feels like for for a show where we count down the seconds and we look at every single frame and you look at it, I yeah. feel like that 10 seconds or whatever it is, five seconds of this minute just slows down to like this imperceptible glacial pace where it feels like it's it hurts how long he doesn't talk. And then he's like, go on. And there's a great... Yep reaction shot from Woodward like like he's waiting to have the beans spilled to him so to speak like he's waiting for this flood of information and he's like go he's like uh, mm-hmm. I I have to tell you things I need you to tell me things <laughs> great it's a great it's a great little it's a great performative piece it's such a beautifully framed piece it's a really really terrific it's interesting I read something years ago I'm a huge fan of Nora Ephron and of course, she was dating Carl Bernstein at the yes. time. And she would, I guess, later on tell anyone who asked who she thought it was. And she said she thought one of the reasons that Mark felt trusted um, Woodward so much is partly because they were both Navy men. Yes. And yeah. And so they'd also kind of had a bond from that. And he'd been a source before. But she always claims, like, no, Bernstein never told me, and I just figured it out. I also found it was hilarious when their first name for him was My Friend, like Mark Phelps. Yes. So I'm glad the editor changed <laughs> that deep throat. That would have been a little too easy to crack that code. My Friend. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for his safety's sake, right? Like, let's be really serious. My friend is like, I'll quote you as my friend. I think if Mark Felt would have been like, uh, no. How about, about, no, I might die. You know, this is is a big problem. Yeah. And uh, Hal Holbrook looks so much like him around that time period. It was actually like a little dangerous, I think, that they chose him. But he was so good. One of my favorite things about this minute. And just to tack on to that, Jen, Woodward, no, go for it. Woodward in, insisted on Holbrook. Yeah. So, so the, the piece of the puzzle is that there are, um, there are actually a litany of terrific actors who are all, and in some huge other names. Obviously, Holbrook was a pretty significant name at the time, but there were huge names that were all in, the, in mm-hmm. contention. And I, I'll let you guys do, or Jen may have done some of the half ass internet research for us as far as who exactly would have been there, because it's a lot of speculation. But there were some other big names in contention, speculatively, that were going to play this role. And it was actually Woodward himself, Bob Woodward, as a consultant, going, he's the mm-hmm. best, like, pick him. Yeah, I know. The guy who looks most like that. the guy. I know. It's like, Woodward, really? <laughs> but, Is it um, authenticity or <laughs> like the impulse? Yeah, it's interesting. But one of my favorite things about this minute was written by or quoted uh, from Steven Soderbergh in this book, uh, Alan J. Pacula, his films in his life. He writes or says uh, in his close-ups, 
Holbrook's got a light right on his eyes, but it's maybe two stops down at the very edge of perception. And there is another light off to the side that just draws a line right around him, highlighting the side of his face. He looks like a ghost. With Redford, we get skin tones. But with Holbrook, it's just completely monochromatic. Deep Throat is not even human. I love that. It is great. Because it's very true. And it's like it becomes a different movie leading up to it. We first get the music score like the minute or two before that. We hadn't had that before. It's late at night. He's walking in a creepy parking garage. And it becomes kind of this totally uh, suspenseful movie that is different from just Redford on the phone, you know, sourcing things out. I love that he points out that light around the eyes because it is imperceptible. And for, and that's yeah. the, the, the Gordon Willis technique of shooting side lighting on things to, to you know, cut faces in half or to, because, again, also yeah. Willis was obsessed with, like, what, would, what lights authentically would do. So, like, here with this high you know, um, uh, fluorescent sort of car park lighting, although there's a lot of, a lot of the lighting seems to have been taken out for this scene, but like yes. that, it, it, <laughs> it, it, the light, the side light that's on his face very much matches color matches and, and feels like it's the light that's also behind him. Cause he's got the natural light of the car park behind him, the side light and the eye light, but the eye light is so, so, so subtle that it's like only now, yeah. like in freeze frame, when you look at it, you're like, oh my God, that's genius. It must be off way behind the camera in like a weird yeah. little spot. And they're doing it in such a low rate, like such a low, low frequency that it's there. It's really beautiful. And obviously Soderbergh obsessed with this movie too. You know, his, his film diary yeah. is so fun to read uh, because- I love it. Because- there's one of the particular years, I think it was over a couple of years, but it was like seven or eight or nine times in two years he'd watch this movie in amongst the litany of other movies that he watches at the same time. And I think that, you know, here's uh, where you've got something like the Social Network, which seems like Fincher and Sorkin speaking directly to their mentor, William Goldman, and this movie. Um, I think Soderbergh's Aaron Brockovich is like, ha- has all those has all the tenacity and all the procedure and all the, you know, forthright sort of approach that, um, that presidents has. I think that, you know, he's, he's kept that in a lot of his style. And there's a link to with Pacula because it's Julia Roberts yes. who is in Pelican Brief. Yes. Yeah. Soderbergh's actually one of my favorite filmmakers. Same. My film school thesis was on sex lies and videotape and I received a scholarship for it. So I've always been obsessed with everything Soderbergh and yeah. So I was very excited to see him quoted in this book. How widely available is that his lives and his films? Is is that something that's in print? Cause I, I I'm troubled. I've been struggling to find some good stuff in Oz, maybe now in the online world, exclusively online world right now. And in, in the midst of this pandemic, as we're recording um, in, in, in April of 2020, uh, if you're listening to this, later um uh is it is it still available have you seen it around yet i bought it used online okay cool i'm gonna i'm gonna find it hopefully you're gonna find it yeah the author is jared brown there's a forward by harrison ford there's a blurb on the back from janet maslin there's some good peter (laughs) jennings uh meryl streep yeah it's kind of got the star power going (laughs) yes i was gonna say (laughs) It's got, it's got everyone. It's got everyone. Yeah, I know. God, if you, if you, speaking as an author, when you're getting that book blurbed, you really, I mean, there's not too many better blurbs and forwards that you could probably approach than that, right? No, not at all. Yeah, there's two full chapters on all the president's men too. So it's really interesting to see, especially the fighting going on with the script, how um, William Goldman wrote a jokey version I found it interesting on this rewatch that I I didn't remember this uh, the first time I saw it, but it's really Robert Redford's movie. And I mean, he is the producer and it's interesting when you watch it because while Bernstein's, you know, wonderful reporter and very good, he's also kind of painted as more of the antagonistic, whereas 
Redford is sort of the Dudley do right from Illinois, Wheaton, Illinois. Yeah, <laughs> told me Wichita, Kansas, or whatever. <laughs> um, but I always found that interesting. One thing I also love about it is it's like he's taking the romantic private eye and turning it into uh, this for journalists. So suddenly they're the romantic ones. Yes. Which I found very cool. All the way yeah. back to foreign correspondent, you know, Hitchcock, the romance. Oh, I of, love that movie. Yeah. The, the, the romance where literally a journalist is a detective, like, but a wartime detective. Like, it's the most. Yeah. It, the, all the lines are blurred there. It, like, breaks all the rules because <laughs> Hitchcock wants to make a, a, a kind of noirish detective movie, but using a journalist as opposed to a, as opposed to a detective. Exactly. Yeah, it is a. Yeah. It is a. You know, we've talked about in other conversations about a movie where the author or the auteur is so clear, like, and there there is an alchemy of cast members and, 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 and once you've got that preparation, there's a level of trust to go kind of off book and do those sorts of things. But like, it is less clear with presidents because... Goldman kind of unlocked the script and there were different iterations. And then ultimately mm-hmm. his final, his final draft of the script is as close to the shooting script as you get. Basically there are like some edits and there's the Efron scene um, that comes in was Bernstein goes down to Florida, which is basically pound, you know, beat for beat. What Efron wrote um, is kind of integrated into mm-hmm. the script, but it's like really one scene in this giant movie. And then when you actually read the script versus how the lines are actually said, there are differences and there's additions and things have been switched, but that all feels very organic to editorial process or like direction or what's organic based on the actors there. So it feels really weird, but you're, you're so right about his author, author voice in that, like he's, Right from the outset, production, engagement with the guys, producing the film, even negotiating to have Hoffman build first, like written yes. first in the film and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, the, to, you know, it's not quite the towering inferno, they need the exact same line, number of words, number of lines or any of that nonsense or in recent yeah. times. They, they need the same amount of hits in the fight as the rock and Vin Diesel. Um, I know, right? But it's, but it's it, you know, he had such a place in it. But I... I kind of really love about this movie how even all the way up to this point, neither of the guys are very good at what they're doing. Like Woodward is very no, good at talking he's to starting people. Out. Yeah, good at talking to people, but not very not a very good journalist. No, he's still learning. Uh, what was also interesting, of course, you know, there's so many stories when it comes to the making of this movie, but book talks about Redford and Pacula actually going to, you probably might have read this too, the Madison Hotel and rewriting the script. Yes. Taking a month to do it. Yeah. And I found that really interesting. Also, the impetus to make the movie was Redford on his press tour. Yes. For the candidate getting mad at journalists not doing enough. And yeah, you can kind of see that. But what I love too with Dustin Hoffman is just the energy is so different. You can tell he has more experience even before he has that sort of expositional line of I've been doing this since I was 16, just the way he carries himself. And he's always kind of lurking. Like he's, he's there yeah, in the it's, office. It's all in the lurk. It's, it's all so in the, great. it's all in this, that cocked head to like, I just want to be listening for, yes. for an in. Is there something I can yeah. get? Is, is that impulse to sort of sidle up to people? He's, 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 He's got it. He's got it. He's he's humming on this like manic frequency. He's so cool. He really is. I know. And I while I was doing the research for this for fun, I rewatched Heartburn. <laughs> yes. Which yeah, which is based on Efron. Again, I'm obsessed. She and I share a birthday, and I think that bonded <laughs> me when I was little. The first script I owned was When Harry Met Sally, and so I became obsessed with her writing. But I read Harper and saw the movie, enjoyed it. But this time around, it was interesting. I was paying attention. For those who don't know, it's about her relationship with Carl Bernstein. They were married and then divorced after he had an affair and their marriage broke up. But even in the fictional version, he's (laughs) always looking for something he can use. Like she gets robbed at her group and uh, she's in a therapy group and 
Kevin Spacey actually follows her from a subway and robs the entire group. <laughs> when she tells Jack Nicholson, who plays Bernstein later, he's like, maybe I can use that for my column. <laughs> so, and she's like, you can't, that, that happened to me. So Meryl Streep was so good in it, but it was a Mike Nichols movie. It's very good, but it was funny to see that Carl Bernstein thing, just lurking around, looking for something to pounce on. Yeah, and, uh, and 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 it's also really nice when you're in charge of writing the script of your breakup to really amplify all those qualities yeah. you know potentially <laughs> like in in your ex. It, not I everyone know. not everyone gets that luxury, but it's like um, you know I think uh, there's that great sort of like tweet level quote of like um, you know don't do anything bad to a writer will describe you, um, and uh, so I think yes. that that's that's uh, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> Very much. I wonder if Efron's. Line. I wonder if Efron's. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to oh, say. Oh, go I want, for it. I, no. I wonder go if for it. if Efron's uh, influence was directly on the the lines about how good looking and how much he was a Lothario at the time. You know, Bernstein. It's like, oh, my friends yeah. are me about you. It's like, oh, yes. Hey, I'm like, I always feel like those lines. Maybe less Goldman. Maybe more Efron on there. Yeah, I heard that scene kind of came from the Bernstein draft. Yes, and when um, the quote somewhere when Redford read the Bernstein draft, he said, "Carl Errol Flynn is dead." <laughs> <laughs> like enough, <laughs> but um, so yeah, there's some great stuff in there. The other thing I didn't know you probably did is Redford was asked to play John Clute, so he had almost mm-hmm. worked with Pacula before. Mm-hmm. I had no clue. You can't imagine, I just can't imagine anyone else in that role. It would have been interesting, but I think Redford's a little too golden boy. Whereas, yeah, Donald Sutherland, yeah. Donald Sutherland brings a quality of desperation that Redford, like, yes. has rarely had in his career. So, yeah, like, it's one of no. those things. There's, at that time, it's so hard in that 70s period to not hear of roles where Redford was either asked to do it and he said no, or whether people were like, we want Robert Redford. And he was in some form of negotiation because it's like everything from Superman to Clute. It's like, he, he really carved the spectrum. Like that whole decade, it was like, we need Robert Redford because I know he's the movie star of this decade. And most times it was like, no, he's a unavailable or B He's not right. Not for right. It. He's not right for it. And no. you know, the studios kept trying to push and other filmmakers are like, no, we're not casting Robert Redford as Superman. Like he doesn't look like Superman. It's not happening. So <laughs> um, yeah, so there are fun ones like that, that litany through the seventies. It's hard to know which ones are blown up or which ones are actually factual in my experience of my I research. Know. Yeah. And like, he was allegedly in contention for the Godfather, which horrifies me, uh, but <laughs> Yeah. That would be so wrong. But, you know, there's yeah. other actors that, um, you know, the other ones is is speaking directly about this film is that Pacino is the other big yes. potential contender for Bernstein. And it's like, yeah, he's got the energy, but is it as manic at that time? I think stillness was really important for him at that time of his career. So it's like, I don't know if it would have worked, but you can totally get that they're like trying to find another, another big name at that time sort of sell as like an equal contender to to Redford at that time but couldn't be older had to be the same age yeah and a good contrast to their style yes I can see Pacino in it luckily he did the insider so many years later so he kind (laughs) of got his own little journalism thing going on yes great movie Lowell Bergman Uh, yes the other movie um, that always you can tell it's origins are from this is Zodiac Yes, one of my favorite my favorite Fincher actually so I love how this movie influenced not only people to jump into journalism school but also that entire generation of filmmakers yes and yeah. and Robert you know it's funny uh, I, I spoke to Peter Avellino um, in the in one of the most recent uh, episodes that we've posted so far as around the time that Jen and I are recording and Peter, in writing about All the President's Men, quoted Vincent Camby's original review, which he said it's like All the President's Men is the thinking man's jaws, um, uh, is is what an original review from like 1976 said. And at the time, um, uh, Roger Ebert wasn't as big a fan of this film, but I think it grew with him when he first saw mm-hmm. Zodiac. He's like, this film is like and all the president's men. He's like, he's, I think his original yep. quote is something like, you know, this is the, the, the crime epic equivalent of all the president's men in that, like the it's, it's, it, 
the pursuit and the agony of like grinding through every new investigative lead to try and get to some kind of resolution. Um, obviously in a much more bleak way and, uh, and a lack of resolution, even though the film has a definite, you know, it lands on Gray Smith's man, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I, you know, the connections between those two things, even from down to the fact that Shire scored Zodiac for Fincher and, mm-hmm. and Goldman is still alive and watching the film and all that sort of stuff. And he's consulting with people like Soderbergh to watch Zodiac with him. That yeah. was a little bit of a, a tidbit that I heard from Brian Koppelman because Koppelman and, and, and Levine were working with Soderbergh at the time that Fincher was filming Zodiac and he asked Soderbergh to come watch it. So, yeah, the, all the connections are there that the, these, these mm-hmm. films are both – unintentional but very intentional kindred spirits very much yeah and you can definitely see it you can you can see it all there what do you think about this the the way that this exchange flows what when you're looking at performances in the 70s and paranoia cinema and and particularly redford in this moment like where are you seeing the influences before this Jen, or and where are you seeing it after because i just wonder someone who's seen so many films and has like got a familiarity with genre like when you're looking at Redford here and, and when you're looking at Hal Holbrook's Deep Throat, like, are you seeing other relationships that we've seen in noirish movies or detective stories before, like, in, in their exchange? That's a really good question. I guess I'd have to give that a little bit more thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the thing I do appreciate about their first exchange is what you were saying earlier about Woodward kind of just starting out. He'd been on the paper nine months. And you can kind of see his hesitation a little bit like also we'd only seen him on the phone pretty much he wasn't really a living room guy like Bernstein you know drinking all the coffee and he's great but it was interesting to see the way that uh, Woodward was trying to adapt to this new environment and I like by the end of it he finally gets upset with the cryptic yes you know like (laughs) tell me yes and it, I think that was the Bernstein influence. Yes. Yeah. So it was nice to see the way that his character arc evolved through the whole movie. And also there's one thing in this scene, which I think is great. Um, Cause later on they seem to always, and this is the Bernstein influence too. Like they, they almost trip over one another to ask the follow-up question because sometimes people yeah. say something and then they'll jump in to give the follow-up to really clarify something or solidify something in their mind. And so he's like, tell me what you know. And so in the minute in question, the minute we're talking about. I'm stuck. Um, he works with Colson and Elias and he's like, that should tell you a lot. And yep. it hangs there for a second, for a beat, and then it goes. And it feels like. He the, wasn't sure how far. Yeah. He, yeah. The later exchanges, he does. He would never let that slide. He's like, what do you, like, he would have no. said, he would have said, what does that mean? What do you mean that should tell me yep. a lot? Like, you know, and and it's in this moment when he's unsure of what this system needs to look like of how they will pass information to one another, especially because now, like, it's not it's no longer candor. He can't just ask him a question. He's got to, like, cryptically confirm and be steered into a direction as the later minutes in this exchange will sort of solidify. But it's one of those things where it's like he doesn't probe beyond too far. He can't. It's, he, w- he won't be allowed to just yet. It's like he'll bump against it, he'll bump against it, and then that's it. He, he can't say anymore. Very true. I think he learns his instincts grow. I also love the relationship with Ben Bradley. Yes. And how much that informs his, his role and growth as a journalist as well. One of my favorite lines in the entire movie, well, I love, I have two favorites is the, the thing that he says to Bernstein, like, I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did it. I've used that so many times. Perfect. <laughs> and then the one that just how good is Robards, first of all, number one, but I love the little grin on his face and the beat. This movie has so many interesting beats uh, in the middle of sentences, the pauses, that psychological thing we see a lot in Pacula's movie he kind of punches on that. But Robard later, like, I don't care where you said. I care what you said in South <laughs> I care what you, ad- yes. you ad- what you admitted to. That's exactly the instinct. That line reading, what you're talking about, is exactly what is missing from this moment. And I think that that's good exactly. with, with both of them. And, I, 
you know, you you were just talking about um you you've also talked about a few times that great, you know, that experience of you being at a journalism conference and it it it's showing off there. But his learning from Bradley happens in, you know, only minutes earlier where he's like, We don't have it. And he sort of mm-hmm. gets the lesson faster than Carl because maybe Carl's experience in them for so much longer is like, oh, I've seen egos. I've seen how people operate. Like this guy doesn't know exactly what he's talking about or he doesn't know everything. And the great complimentary impulse of Woodward in that scene is like, no, we don't have it. Why are we bitching about it? We just don't have it. And it's actually yeah. that lesson, that influence from Bradley in that moment where he's like, no, I've got to go to my big internal source for that moment. Can I ask when you were in the, that like journalism conference and maybe this will sort of help tease out the details, like the figure of deep throat, this is before anyone knows who he is. Let's just go back mm-hmm. to this before who, anyone knows who he is. And even though Efron's like, Oh, it was him. I guessed. Um, yeah. Uh, like as a figure at that time and you were watching it as a journalist, like how, how much was the emphasis on the, imp- or the importance on sources at that time? Like as in sources who could, uh-huh. Um, like, was it, was it like the, the hinge uh, of everything that was being discussed? Like that, that a source, you know, the key to a great story is a source that's this big. Really? Um, it was just talking about the integrity and how you have to be willing to go to jail to protect the source. Yes. Also what deep, what deep background means all of the off the record. Yes. It was, yeah, it was kind of like I was in high school at the time. So it was more geared towards trying to convince us and inspire us to go into (laughs) journalism very much. But it's funny, then a year later at 16, I started college and I became a film student. One of the first movies we watched in film class was Robert Redford's Ordinary People. Yes. So it's kind of weird how Redford, you know, inspired the writing side of me and the journalism conference and then his movie ordinary people so robert redford there you go <laughs> he's inspired he's the is the face that launched a thousand ships in gender like <laughs> journalism and film at the same time and jeremiah johnson and yeah listen <laughs> the connections are bound the connections yes. are bound um very much when you're thinking about this film i think that one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about in this minute as a, as, as a, a film aficionado is, is particularly, you know, we talked a little bit about the lighting and the mood, but it's like, doesn't this feel like a complete different planet to what we've seen so far in the film when you're talking about the, yeah. the mood of the entire pic- picture? Because I, that's one thing that I think I will always want to come back to is, um, in people's memory of the film, you think about the newsrooms, you think about those brightly lit scenes, you think about the beautiful, lovely expanse of their recreated Burbank, Washington post and and Mm -hmm. the library of Congress scene. Um, But I, and also people think about these car parks, but it's like that there's a, there's a complementary nature to their contrasts that, I think is so quintessentially pacular. Like, I think that's what he does so well is like these real tangible, real spaces, but then these other spaces that feel like they're on another planet almost. Yeah. I also, the memory of the parking garage scene, I thought there was more light. Yes. And so watching this, it's like he walks away from the newsroom and, you know, having to change cabs and the really, I mean, the long takes were a little bit more imperceptible yes. in the newsroom. Yes. Here, you really feel that long walk over to Deep Throat or the long car ride that he takes you on. Nowadays, they would probably cut it and he'd be there in two seconds. But you really <laughs> feel it here. And it's like he left that world and went into like a big fast-paced thriller or even a horror movie because we're not sure what's lurking right around the corner there. No, the power, yeah. the power of a little, the, the flick of the yeah. lighter to, to warn him. But yeah, like I, I think those long takes, there's so much information that's being passed through, like in, in those newsrooms and in the yeah. courtrooms and in the Library of Congress scenes even, there's so much information. So there's these yawning gaps between, you know, score and what is imperceptible and, 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 and then experience like walking across the street or walking down into the bowels of this thing just so slowly to um, eke out and like, and, and take you away from like such a 
like a relentless pace. Like we're now like essentially 40 minutes into the movie and you're like, it just has not even breathed yet. It doesn't feel like you, you've you've had a moment to catch up. It's It's gone past so quickly. And then you get to this moment, mm-hmm. actually it feels like, oh, this is a big moody moment that I need to be, I really am like, I need to sort of find myself you in. You breathe. Yeah, you're breathing. Yeah. You're breathing in this moment. Yeah. The other thing you just inspired, it made me think about it in an interesting way with the flick of the lighter, how all of the other, the rest of the movie, I should say, has so much information packed into it. It's confusing as hell. <laughs> like you're watching it. And you, there's too many names. And you're like, okay, Segretti is who now? You know, you're trying to put them all together, but it slows it down. All of a sudden that information kind of, you get a little reprieve from so much being fired at you. And it takes it back to old film noir tactics. Yes. Like a little shadow and the flick of the light. I mean, that could be Humphrey Bogart. We don't know. <laughs> so it's very cool when it's Hal Holbrook. A, a great yeah. fantasy casting of uh, David Tarrant. <laughs> and extremely, yes, and ex- exactly. extremely distracting if that was the case, but uh, very good. Yeah. And he doesn't look like Mark Felt, so it would have hit his identity. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Better but, than yeah. my friend. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. But yeah, this is where it like really becomes, you know, le- leans into that noirish feeling. But for me, I mm-hmm. I just look at I I look at it and and try and sort of track that when films do something so different like this, it sort of organically mm-hmm. feels like it gets into that moment. But at the same time, it is if you when you watch it in isolation, sometimes it feels like it's on a different planet to a newsroom scene because the newsroom scene is so vibrant, there's so much, much happening. So many different faces and people and textures and books and mess, all the good, all the good mess of the mm-hmm. maison saint. It's like it's all so wonderful, and then you get here and it's like it's dark. Yes, gross. <laughs> like, did the production designer go home? Like, what's going on? <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> did they go home? Yeah, did they did, forget the lighting did, did, guy? Did, did the yeah. entire lighting department go on strike today? Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that could be said of all Gordon Willis movies. But it's um, it's yeah, it's just that that great texture, that great moment. Now, I have to ask, you've seen this, you said you saw it when you were 16, Robert Redford obviously means so much to the life of Jen Johans. We were learning now, <laughs> I love the secret history of Jen Johans and Robert Redford. Um, as there you me, go. As emerging. Another Robert, not De Niro <laughs> this time. You're uh, always getting the Robert. All the yeah. Bob, oh, well, we, we affectionately call him Bobby um, in, in your other, yes, in your we other show. In those, <laughs> we have that relationship. Um how often do you go back to journalism movies? Like, are you, are you a bit of a fiend for them or do they just sort of sprinkle through because you've had past experience learning about it and then fl- flicked into that filmmaking, uh, film studies flex? Like, where are journalism movies and how often do you re- revisit them in your in your life? I find myself just drawn to movies about creative people. Yes. Highly verbal people, um, artists, musicians, like Almost Famous, which is a journalism movie, but also a music movie, I kind of relate to the younger character of that and Ioni Sky in Say Anything. So those are like, if you put those together, that's me. (laughs) But I love all of the movies about writers. Wonder Boys is a favorite. Journalism movies probably don't watch quite as much just because there's so much fact-based information. Like I think over the weekend, you probably saw my tweet. I think you did, or I... Right, at right, contacted you with it. I found the insider. Yes, I don't think I had seen it since we bought the DVD, probably back in '99 <laughs> or 2000. So I don't watch these as much. I do watch Zodiac an awful lot just because yes. it's so fun and it's, it kind of is the parking garage scene, but like expanded for the entire <laughs> film, basically. Yeah, but um, and I think I watch Pelican Brief a little bit more. I do watch all the president's men probably every few years. Yes. So I can't absorb that much information that quickly, which is why I watched it twice this week. Cause I <laughs> wanted to make sure I was you keeping all the names straight. Yes. Have to bring your a game for Blake. <laughs> so, cause, <laughs> cause you know I, what you're doing I, I, with it. I love how you, t- you talk about Zodiac being fun. That's just so fun to hear people talk about that which is the dark movie but it is it is fun mm-hmm. it is definitely fun um and yeah it's the first mention of almost famous which is such a great journalism movie but it's just an a it music, it's a music journalism movie it's the music journal it it's it's the all the president's men of music journalism movies there should they should be cancel the rest it's the best one yeah 
yeah, enough of the rest, the other <laughs> ones, like where they go out looking for the rock star that might be hiding or something. One of those. No, yeah. this is Cameron Crowe's life. So I love that. Yeah. It's the ultimate coming of age movie. Yes. Ultimate journalism. You could approach it from a lot of different angles. I think that's why I watch that one all the time. And also Zodiac, because you can watch it, you know, as a fan of a number of different things put together. All the President has been is a masterpiece, but you have to be ready to go on this journey. Remember all the names. Um, it's kind of like, I remember growing up seeing my mom take notes during Twin Peaks. The, the, <laughs> when she first saw the pilot, she was trying to, she's one of those people who can watch a mystery and know like who it is right away. And Twin Peaks just fascinated her. So she watched the premiere twice. I was on the floor as a kid watching it with her. She's like taking notes. Okay, Jay is under the fingernail and this is that. And <laughs> yeah. And so all the president's men, it's kind of like that. You're ready to take some notes. Like, okay, Gordon Liddy is just like when um, and Robert Hunt, Redford and has. And works at the CIA. And yeah, okay. Yes. And Redford has to ask who the uh, special counsel, was it, is. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, we're going to fire you for being so dumb. <laughs> Charles Coulson, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, lucky. I'm so lucky that you asked me that. Because if you asked Bradley or Simons that, <laughs> would have fired you and said, who's this guy for being so dumb? Um, yes. A great scene. The great, one of the Another great, awesome yeah, delivery one, of a line by Robart. One of the great pep talk scenes of all time. Well, look, um, <laughs> I... I Thank you so much for coming down to this dark garage with me. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining me for another podcast. I'm so glad that, uh, that the One Heat family continues to bloom into other podcasting endeavors. So thank you so much for that. And um, the secret history of your relationship with another Robert, uh, not a Bobby, but another another Robert is um, <laughs> is is so fun. And uh, and I will definitely uh, make sure I carefully use uh, the Jeremiah Johnson gift with you from now on. Jen Johans, thank you so much okay. for being part of the show. <laughs> Thank you so much, Blake. This was a blast. You have a good one. That was my incredible guest, Jen Johans. You can find Jen at Film Intuition on Twitter and also go to filmintuition.com. Her podcast, Watch With Jen, which I may be on by the time you listen. I'm not sure if it's going to line up right, but um, look, she's absolutely terrific. She's a very sharp film mind and just naturally incredibly studious. And so she always comes with so many great insights about any films that she discusses. A worthwhile follow and definitely a worthwhile listen to. Jen, thank you so much for being a part of the show once again. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute Productions. Wow, we are at the very end of Josie and the Podcats. 12 episodes. Started at 6, but it's 12 episodes of a ripping series. The 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats. How it began, the history of the characters, all the way through to its enduring legacy with host Maria Lewis. This week we kick off a very... Very special new show, a video and audio podcast, Miami Nice, which you can hear in this thread. It is season seven on One Heat Minute Productions. You can also catch Increment Vice, which this week has a huge episode with The Last Jedi, Brick and Looper's Ryan Johnson. Ooh, boy, it's good. You got to check that bad boy out. And, of course, all the President's Minutes. If you're listening this week, we have another huge week for you. We have, obviously, Peter Ryan, Daniel Lemon. Jen Johans, Jason Bailey, many more incredible guests coming along on this show. If you want to support us, there is a link um, to uh, there is a link to support us in the show notes of this show um, to donate just as a one-off uh, cash donation. You can also become a patron um, on Patreon with a couple of bonus features there and more uh, bonus features coming onto there as well. Guys, thank you so much for your support. If you can't at this time, I know COVID-19 is insane. If you can't support us directly like that monetarily, um, just a share, a retweet, a share on the Facebook, uh, uh, letting your friends know. Absolutely appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on another episode from the One Heat Minute production stable soon.